you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A man gets a phone call from his doctor with some very important test results. And the doctor says, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. And he says, well, the good news is you've got 24 hours to live. And the man says, well, hang on a minute. How can that be possibly good news? And the doctor says, the bad news is I couldn't get through when I tried to phone you yesterday. It's a terrible joke. It's a terrible joke. But the connection is that as we continue our sermon series on the letter to James to the early church, the passage we heard read this morning, it's very much a good news, bad news message, except it's the other way around, because the kind of challenging news, we might say, comes first. And as is entirely appropriate in a sermon, it finishes with some very good news indeed. So let's pray as we begin. Lord Jesus, send your Holy Spirit shine your light on your word make it alive and effective in our hearts and change us more into your likeness we pray in your precious name Amen So do please turn to page 1214 of the Church Bibles if you've got one, or look at the passage in your service sheet. So what is the issue that James is addressing here? Well, it couldn't be more serious. Um, A little bit like the story of the doctor, it's truly a matter of life and death. Not physical life and death, but spiritual life life and death. The immediate context of this passage is that James has just given a very stark warning in the preceding verses by saying in verse 13 that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Let me just say that again because it's important. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. I don't know about you, but that worries me when I read it. If I died today, have I been merciful enough to others to avoid this judgment without mercy? It sounds as if somehow I have to be good enough or kind enough or compassionate enough in order to earn God's approval. And that leaves me with a great deal of uncertainty. 
The good news is that James doesn't just leave us there. So here we go. I wonder if you've ever come across someone who talks a really good story, often about themselves, but what you notice is that they don't really live it out. The phrase is, they don't walk the talk. They make out that perhaps they are worthy or have certain qualities, that they demand these qualities of others, but they just don't seem to do it or live it out themselves. Well, it's something like that that James is thinking of when he opens this passage with a question which goes as follows from verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? And I suppose we might think about that question and answer, well, it's not much good. A pretty poor Christian if they claim to have faith but don't do any good deeds. But shockingly, James goes on to a second question, which brings into a question which brings into question not whether they are good Christians or moderate Christians or indifferent Christians, but actually whether their faith is of any use at all. Can such faith save them? asks James. And we all recognise a rhetorical question when we see it. James presumes that the answer is a resounding no. But before we explore this further, let's just address one vitally important point. Namely, what is it that James means when he says, can such faith save them? When we're saved, we're always saved from something. For example, if a lifeguard pulls you out of the ocean, we're saved from drowning. And if a person stops to help us when our car's broken down on the side of the road, we're saved from being stranded. And when our Christian faith saves us, the Bible tells us on many, many occasions, and the church has taught for 2,000 years, that we're saved from spiritual death. That we're given a new life now by the Holy Spirit so that we can live in relationship with God until our physical death, and that in the afterlife we're resurrected to spend eternity in the new heaven and the new earth with all who have died in the faith. And if we don't have a saving faith, then we face spiritual death. Well, that's variously described in the Bible as a living hell or outer darkness or destruction. I think all of these things are metaphors, but none of them sound very pleasant. And so when James says, can such faith save them, this faith without deeds, he's asking a pretty serious question. He's posing the question that if a person claims to have faith but doesn't walk the talk, is their faith actually going to save them from spiritual death? So what do we think? Well, let me suggest how the first hearers of this letter might have reacted to that question. Because I think they would have said, well, actually, James, yes, I think such a faith can save us. Why do I say that? Well, because the teaching of the church and the understanding of what Jesus taught was that salvation comes through faith, not by works, not by how much good we've done to other people. Jesus had said in the Gospel of John, he said, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him 
will not perish but have eternal life. He didn't say whoever has done good deeds will not perish. He said whoever believes in him. And Paul the Apostle had written to the Galatians that a person is not justified by works but by faith in Jesus Christ. So I think those early Christians who were challenged by James's letter would have said, well, I don't know what, what you're on about, James. I mean, of course we're saved by faith alone. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Why are you questioning it? Well, if they were surprised at James's question, then they would have been shocked by his own answer. And his answer comes in the form of an example of what he means. In verse 15, he says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead, he says. Notice the word dead. He doesn't say it's kind of weak faith or poor faith. He says it's dead. It's of no use at all. Might as well not even have it. Because it's a faith that doesn't save you. Well, by now, the Christians reading or hearing his letter would have been shocked to the core. It seems that James is teaching almost the opposite of what they'd been taught to believe. Because we're saved by faith and not by works, surely. And here's James saying, we're saved by giving somebody clothes and food and faith isn't good enough. Where does that leave me? Have I given enough people food and clothes? Or am I facing spiritual death? What am I to think? Well, I'll come back to that in a minute, if you can bear the suspense. Because next, James goes on to demonstrate with another example how belief in God of itself is not enough to save us. In verse 19, he speaks to a kind of imaginary potential objector to what he's teaching. And he says... And and in his mind, this objector has said, no, 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 I believe in in the one true God. And, And James says, okay, so you believe that there is one God? Good. Very good. Ten out of ten for that. But now comes the bombshell. He goes on and says, even the demons believe that. He points out to the person who says that belief in God is enough that, well, even the devil knows that there's a there's one creator God. But he's not destined for heaven. That's not the qualification. Simply believing that there's a God. It's interesting, isn't it? I get many people coming and asking me to baptise their children. And some of them tell me, I believe there's a God. Or I believe there's someone up there. James points out that so does even the devil. He knows that only too well. But simply believing that there is a God is not what constitutes... Saving faith, says James. So what's the, how do we get our heads around this conundrum? Well, there's a story that we tell on the Alpha course, and I love this story. I tell it often. You've probably heard me tell it before. Um, because it's really helpful, I think, in understanding the difference between believing something and true faith. And it's the story of Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known as Blondin. He was a world-famous acrobat and tightrope walker who lived at the beginning of the 20th century. And his party piece, the thing he was most famous for, 
was walking across an 1,100-foot-long tightrope stretched right across the Niagara Falls, 150 feet above the water. And people would come from all over the world to see him cross the falls on this tightrope. And, and his particular party piece was he had a wheelbarrow, and the front wheel had the tyre the taken off so that the rim would run along the wire. Anyway, on this particular occasion, there was a royal party out from the UK, headed by the Duke of Newcastle, and they were all in the front row of the stands which had been built overlooking the falls to, to see Blondin do his act. And Blondin took his wheelbarrow and he wheeled it all the way across the falls and all the way back again, and the crowd clapped and cheered. And then he did something a little more difficult. He picked up a huge sack of potatoes and he put it in the wheelbarrow and he wheeled it all the way across the falls, 1,100 feet, 150 feet above the Niagara Falls, and all the way back again. And the crowd went wild, and they clapped and cheered. And then Blondin walked up to the royal party sitting in the front row, and he said, do you believe that I could wheel a person across the falls and back in my wheelbarrow? And the Duke of Newcastle, who'd just seen what he'd done with a sack of potatoes, said, well, sure, I, I believe you could do that. And so Blondin said, hop in. And all of a sudden, the Duke of Newcastle decided that there were several very pressing reasons why they had to leave. And he didn't get into the wheelbarrow. And so Blondin turned to the whole crowd and he said, will anybody get into my wheelbarrow? And I'll wheel them across the falls. And there was an absolute silence and nobody moved. And he waited. And after a couple of minutes, a little old lady came out of the crowd and she climbed into his wheelbarrow. And he wheeled her all the way across the falls and all the way back again. And that was Blondin's mother. And if you like, that's the difference between belief and faith. There wasn't a person there who didn't believe that Blondin could wheel a human being across the falls and back in his wheelbarrow. They had all seen him do it with the sack of potatoes. But there was only one person who would act on their belief and put their faith in Blondin, and that was his mother. And that's the secret. That's what James means by faith without deeds is dead. It's one thing to say that we believe in God, but it's totally another thing to actually live our lives as if we believed it, as if we believed the gospel, as if we really believe that God has loved us so much Even though we deserve spiritual death for all our sins, he came in the person of Jesus Christ and took our place, dying for us on the cross so that we could be liberated from sin and death and set free. This is why faith without deeds is dead. Because when a person is saved by grace, their lives speak of it. Jesus becomes the number one priority. It doesn't mean we become perfect, sinless people. It doesn't mean we all become vicars or curates. The process of becoming more like Jesus is a lifelong journey. But saving faith is always characterised by an awareness that we are on that journey. That as grace has come to us, so we become dispensers of that grace. And very briefly, James goes on to show us two different examples of a saving faith in action. And the first is Abraham. In verses 20 to 24, James reminds them of Abraham's faith in God, which was so evident 
that even when God asked him to go and sacrifice his only son, the son, by the way, that he'd waited 25 years for his wife to conceive, he obeyed God and took young Isaac up the mountain, tied him to a sacrificial altar, and was about to kill him with his knife when God intervened. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed in the story of Abraham, but Abraham's trust in God was so great that Abraham fully expected that if he had sacrificed Isaac on the altar, that God would have brought him back from the dead. How do we know this? Because when Abraham leaves his two servants to go up the mountain, he says to them, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham never doubted as he went up the mountain that Isaac would be sacrificed, but he never doubted that he would return with him. No wonder God loved him so much. His faith was a prophetic act, if you like. It modelled the love that God would show hundreds of years later when he gave his only son as a sacrifice and bring him, and bring him back to life. This is a saving faith, acting on what we believe, not just believing. I want to tell you a very quick story because I love it so much. There's a, someone on our Alpha course. Um, we were talking about how God guides us uh, a, a few weeks ago. And, um, and she told us this, this lovely story. Um, she was living in London at the time, and, uh, but felt called to come to Reading. But it was very difficult. She had to try and get council housing and put her name down on the list. And... Uh, was told that there was absolutely no chance whatsoever um, that at current rates of housing availability, it would take eight years to get a house in Reading because she was out of area. Perhaps not surprising. And, um, but when she woke up one morning, she heard God say to her, I want you to get ready. And she believed that God was telling her to prepare to move to Reading, even though she'd just been told this. And so, against all logic, and much to some people's surprise, she started packing up all her belongings in London and getting all the children's stuff packed in suitcases. Over two weeks, she packed up um, all of her belongings, absolutely sure that she'd, she'd heard from God. The day after she'd finished packing, she got a phone call from Reading Borough Council saying, we've got a house for you. That was just two or three weeks after she'd been told that it would take eight years if she wanted to move. That's, I love that story. Putting, hearing from God, believing him, and, uh, and acting on it. It's wonderful. The second, the second point, per, the second person James points to as a person who lives out their faith, is a prostitute called Rahab who lived in Jericho at the time that the Israelites crossed the Jordan to enter the Promised Land. And although she was a Canaanite, Joshua 2 verses 8 to 11 make it clear that Rahab believes in the God of all creation. She's seen and heard of his mighty acts in support of the Israelites. But her faith doesn't just stop there. She recognises her obligation to help the people of God 
in the best way that she can, which is to first risk her life by hiding them to avoid capture and then to assist their escape to freedom. Once again, faith is evident by how she acts. Rahab, like Abraham, walks the talk. So what does all this mean for us? What if we're worried that we don't have a saving faith? Are we to rush out and do lots of good deeds to make sure we're okay? Well, absolutely not. That's certainly not what James is saying. According to the New Testament, there are four main foundations to a saving faith. And Peter spelled them out on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Number one is repentance, which means being aware of the things that are wrong in our lives, turning away from them and putting them behind us, deciding to leave them behind. God wants us to get rid of the things in our lives that don't do us any good. The second thing is putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And that means making him number one in our lives. It means staking our lives on him just as Blondin's mother staked her life on her son. It means actively living out Jesus' commission to be good news in the world. Thirdly, being baptised. An important part, and it was vitally important in the early church, an important part of saving faith is to make a public declaration of our belonging to Jesus, his body, the church. For some of us who are baptised as infants, that adult declaration is made in confirmation or affirming our baptismal vows. That's the third thing, baptism. The fourth thing is being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we truly open the door to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. And the Holy Spirit makes Jesus number one in our lives. The Spirit becomes the driving force behind our deeds. This morning, I want to ask anyone who's here today, having heard what I've said If you're unsure about where you stand with God or about what this message means, if that's you, I want to invite you to do one of two things or even both things. Come up at the end of the service and ask the prayer ministry team to pray with you. Tell them what it is that you're unsure about and they'll pray for you for God's spirit to lead you through repentance and faith to a complete assurance of his saving love and grace. And or, come along on the next Alpha course starting in September. Because we'll go through all of this nice and slowly over the weeks in more detail and things will become clearer to you. Let me know if you'd like to do that. When we've given our lives over to Jesus, we don't have to strive to do enough deeds in order to please God. God has already shown his love for us in Jesus. Far from it. The good news of the gospel is that the joy of knowing and loving God through Jesus Christ results in lives of faith and obedience to God where good deeds and acts of love flow naturally and supernaturally from our faith. Let's pray.